Growing a business brings pressure. It's not easy to maintain momentum and still keep employees engaged. Fortunately, there's Insperity. Their scalable HR solutions help me with hiring, training, HR administration, and compliance while giving my employees competitive benefit options. When my people are able to thrive, my business can adapt and prosper. With Insperity, nothing seems impossible. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. The Oracle Look deeper. This is a disappearance and murder case, but the problems go so much further back than that time period. Parents' addictions, family services neglect, and police neglect are all things that led up to the murder of Tina Fontaine. Welcome to or welcome back to the Great Unsolved Podcast. This is where I, Alexis, dive into unsolved cases that just really baffle me. If you don't already, then go follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Those links are going to be in the description of this episode. Our Patreon mini episode for the month of May is out now on the case of Sandra Bland. There is much more to her story than a five-minute dash cam video and a suicide. In order to access that, you just have to be a patron in the $5 tier or higher. In addition to an extra episode a month, I do candid crime chats where I share my thoughts on something in crime, unsolved or not. Big shout out to our new patron, Kaylara Owl. She is a case and victims advocate and has so many great things to say. There is a video on our YouTube channel where I chat with her, so go check that out. Now let's jump into the sad case of Tina Fontaine. When I first started researching this case, I was really concerned because I only got through writing one page of notes and it seemed like I was at the complete end of the case. And then I found some documents, and I read over 200 pages in one night, and this case really expanded. So to get to the bottom of this case, we have to go back to the beginning, before Tina even existed. This is because the trauma and children and family services neglect within the family started generations before her. I want everyone to know that this is also an indigenous case due to Tina being born into Sag King First Nation. I know I'm butchering that name, and I know somebody in the reviews is going to just massacre me for it, but it is S-A-G, capital K-E-E-N-G, First Nation. And the fact is that cases that fall into the category of indigenous cases are still very underrepresented in our society. So please make sure to remember the indigenous victims. They're just as important as any other case. At the young age of 12, Tina's father ran away from his home, seemingly for good. 
This isn't because he was a troubled child, but because his father was really not fit to be a parent. Alcoholism ran in the family, and his father had it bad, which turned him into a very violent person. There was no information on what happened to his mother during this time, but she does come into the picture later. When Tina's father left at 12 years old, he went to live on the streets of Winnipeg alone. There, he would fend for himself and quickly develop an alcohol addiction, just like his father before him. Not much is known about Tina's mother, also named Tina, but we will call her by her last name, Duck, until she turned six years old. At the age of six, Duck was removed from her parents' home, and it is stated that she had endured a number of traumas while living with her parents. By the age of 10, Duck became a permanent ward in the Children and Family Services of Canada. Although it would seem as if being in CFS was safer for Duck, it turns out that CFS was not doing their job to protect her. Workers knew that she was being sexually exploited by older men and seemingly did not even attempt to stop this. Although awful, this is only the first of many problems with CFS in this case. At the age of 12, Duck met Tina's father, who at that time was 23. CFS was aware that their relationship was not platonic, but much more of a sexual nature but did not try to step in and protect her. Before 2008 in Canada, the age of consent was 14, except for things like porn or sex work. That age was 18. It is also stated that those who were aged 12 or 13 can still give consent, as long as the age difference is not more than two years. Those who are aged 14 or 15 can still give consent, as long as the age difference was not more than five years. This means that a 14-year-old could have sex with a 19-year-old, and it could be legal. Apparently, this is very similar in the United States, which just blows my mind. I always was under the impression that the age of consent was 18. I thought when you became an adult is when it was fine, as long as it was with other willing adults, but apparently I was completely wrong. Duck was known to run away from CFS housing, and whenever she did, they knew that Tina's dad was the one harboring her, so at least she was easy to find once again. It was around this time that it was discovered that their relationship was often violent as well, but that did not stop them from pursuing their relationship, as CFS still did nothing to help out Duck. Two years later, at the age of 14, Duck became pregnant for the first time. CFS seemed concerned about this because it was often discovered that Duck was still drinking and not seeking prenatal care for her baby. Because of this, and the two not being fit to be parents, CFS stepped in and took the infant away soon after it was born. The child made a CFS permanent by the age of seven months. Three years later, when Duck was 17 and Tina's dad was 28, they finally had Tina. Before Tina was born, the couple made more of an effort to become good parents. They took some parenting classes and prenatal classes, while also keeping up with prenatal care. Because of this, CFS thought their lives were picking up, 
and they were not going to try and take Tina away from them when she was born. The hospital also stated that there were no concerns when Tina was born. According to them, the parents were in good condition to provide for their child. As things in Tina's life progressed, it was often reported that one or both parents were often under the influence of drugs and or alcohol, but Tina still remained within the home. When Tina was a year and a half old, she gained a younger sibling. This is the last child that was specifically mentioned and the last one that this couple had together. However, Duck would go on to have five more children, making Tina one of eight siblings. Four months after Tina's younger sibling was born, CFS stepped in. CFS was notified by the children's grandmother because she was left with the children for a long period of time and could not accurately take care of them. Duck talked to CFS shortly after the children were taken and told them, you know what, I'll find better childcare. But personally, I don't think that should have been accepted as an excuse for this happening. However, four days later, both children were returned to their parents. It should also be noted that there were no assessments of the parents or the home life before the children were given back. In early 2001, the family of four went to stay with Tina's paternal grandmother, and they seemed somewhat stable. However, around this time, Tina's parents separated for a few months, eventually getting back together in March of 2001. While they were separated, both of the children stayed with their father at his mother's house, so it seemed they were well taken care of during that time. Just months later, this changed drastically. In June of that same year, someone called the police to report a loud house party. More specifically, they wanted to report that two adults were seen very intoxicated and leaving the home with two young children. Then, later on, these same two adults were seen re-entering the party with just one child. Because of that report, both CFS and the police were sent to the party. Once all of the intoxicated people were cleared out, they questioned the parents and decided that it would not be okay to leave these children in their care. So Tina and her younger sibling were taken by CFS, and only nine days later, they were put into a foster home. As the children seemed to be the only thing keeping the couple together, they split up not long after they were taken away. It is unclear how, but eventually Tina's father was able to get them back, and he seemed determined to become a good dad at that time. He was single and did not have their mother around, but he was learning. From the time Tina was three to five years old, she lived with her father. He would take her to the community center every morning so that someone could braid her hair and he could learn how to help her get ready for school. By all accounts, he was making a huge effort for the little girl. However, in October of 2004, her father's alcoholism seemed to make a comeback or at least be more apparent. He seemed unable to care for the children anymore and talked to his aunt and uncle about taking the two in. Tina's great aunt and uncle agreed through a private guardianship agreement to take in and care for the two children, and this seemed to be one of the best steps in Tina and her siblings' life. Although neither of the children were considered to be in the CFS system at this time, 
it seems that the great aunt and uncle still kept in touch with the agency. In a phone call in January of 2005, the aunt progresses her worry that Tina may have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. This is a group of conditions that can occur in a person whose mother drank alcohol during pregnancy. This often results in physical, behavioral, or learning problems, and even more often, a mixture of all three. The aunt stated that Tina was unusually hyper, and this could be a problem categorized under this disorder. Also backing up the idea that Tina may have this disorder was the fact that she really seemed to struggle in school. She had trouble with reading, writing, math, etc., but she was able to receive extra help, and it seemed like that was working. She moved from first to second and on to third grade, but ended up having to retake third grade. But she did eventually pass. She continued to have to work harder than others in school, but she was making it, and that's what really mattered. When Tina turned the age of 12, which is a critical age for development in one's life, her father died of a head injury due to being assaulted. He had gotten in a fight with two other men that had resulted in his injury and eventually death. Although Tina did not live with her father, he was very present in her life and she loved him dearly. The absence of him turned out to be very difficult for her. Because there was no open file with CFS at this time, they were not around to help her with counseling or any other mental health services that Tina obviously needed. Something odd that I just noticed in this case is that things seem to happen, or big things seem to happen in this family when people reach the age of 12. Her father ran away at 12, her mother met her father at 12, which spiraled into all this, and then Tina's father died at 12. Probably doesn't mean anything, but it always amazes me that there's coincidences like that. Anyway, at the time, family and friends reported that Tina shown signs of depression after her father died, and they did not get better. She also began to have more trouble with school once again, but things went far beyond this. Tina began to experiment with drugs and alcohol and became quite violent. She was also being sexually exploited by grown men at this time. It turns out sexual exploitation is actually a large problem in Manitoba. People just seem to hide it as best as they can. These conditions and problems would only continue to worsen as there was no mental health help in sight for Tina. On November 4th of 2013, is the first time Tina's great aunt reported her missing. It would not be the last. She thought that Tina was at her mother's, but could not get a hold of her. Police eventually did find Tina at her mother's and were able to send her back to live with her great aunt once again. Tina's self-destructive rampage continued with her getting suspended from school in April of 2014 due to cannabis use. In school records, it was stated that this was Tina's second offense, but no record could really ever be found of the first offense, and the principal was unable to state what the first offense had been. There was also no record of how long Tina's suspension was supposed to be, so it seems that after being suspended, 
Tina simply stopped attending school. Around the same time, Tina's great aunt contacted CFS, stating that she felt she was unable to safely handle Tina's behaviors at this time. She was hoping that CFS would be able to step in and help out, or maybe even place Tina somewhere where she would be safer. The great aunt called them and stated this, just due to Tina being missing once again. Like I said, the first time was not the last time. And this was the second or third time she had ran away from home. However, later that day, the great aunt called CFS back and stated that Tina was no longer missing. She was found at an extended family member's home, and she would be staying there for a bit. So everything seemed all right, as it was at the time. In May of 2015, though, Tina was hospitalized due to suicidal thoughts. She was also able to meet with victim services during this time due to them being in contact with the family since Tina's father had died. She told them that she wanted to start counseling and try to control and better her mental health. So they set the start date for these counseling sessions as July of that same year. Victim services had been around her family for about two and a half years at this point, so it didn't make sense to me why they hadn't offered her counseling sessions long before she went to the hospital. But moving on to June of 2015, it was reported by her great aunt that Tina was doing well overall, but was still struggling with her father's death and the addictions that came upon after. Thinking it may help Tina out, her mother, Duck, requested that both of the children visit her in Winnipeg for a little while. Being apprehensive about this, Tina's great-aunt decided to talk with a CFS agent and see if this would be a good idea or not. While talking with the CFS agent, they stated that there are no problems with the mother at the time, so all should be well with allowing Tina and her sibling to go see her. Due to this, the great-aunt agreed to let them go, and this would be the fatal move for Tina. The agent for CFS would later dispute the fact that they gave the go-ahead for the two to visit their mom. However, I believe this was just them trying to take the blame away from themselves for what later happened to Tina. The last time the great aunt would see Tina alive was on July 1st of 2015, before she left to visit her mother. The great aunt gave her $50 and a calling card, and Tina was on her way. It wasn't long after Tina had gone to stay with her mother and visit that the great aunt was once again calling CFS. While on the phone, she stated that Tina's boyfriend had told her that while Tina was with her mother, they were using cocaine and Tina was being sexually exploited. The great aunt was very worried for her safety at this time, but it seems CFS did little to nothing with this information. So the next day, the great aunt called back again. She stated that Tina had been texting her sibling, who apparently had stayed behind with the great aunt and uncle instead of going for the visit. In these texts, Tina had sent a picture of her with a black eye that she stated came from their mother. Once again, she was expressing great concern for Tina, but seemingly nothing was done.
July 17th, Tina was finally picked up by CFS, but it was for something completely unrelated to her aunt's calls. Someone had called the police, stating they saw a girl being drugged by her arm down the street by an older-looking man, and that while the girl was being drugged down the street, she was screaming for help and trying to get away. This girl turned out to be Tina. When police arrived, they gave her a breathalyzer and found that her blood alcohol concentration was 0.109%. For comparison, the legal limit in the United States is 0.08, so Tina was quite intoxicated. Due to there being no emergency housing available around the area for CFS, they put Tina in a downtown Winnipeg hotel. When she sobered up, she was questioned about the events of that day and she stated that she was not in a sexual relationship with the 18-year-old male who had been seen dragging her down the street. Later, though, she would refute this by stating that he was, in fact, her boyfriend. Even though they clearly had reason to worry about Tina and keep her due to her only being 15, they let her leave that hotel on July 18th without a guardian around. This is the area in the timeline that a few days start to go missing, but I will fill you in on what we do know. So from July 23rd to 26th, Tina stayed in a youth temporary shelter. From my understanding, this is kind of like a homeless shelter, but for youth who need it. And I don't know if it was run by CFS or it was independently run, but that's where she stayed. She ran away on the 26th and did not return until the 27th, when she only stayed for an hour. Then she came back again on the 28th and stayed until the 29th. It wasn't until August 1st that the youth shelter told CFS that they were going to discharge Tina due to her not being around, but they would see if they could get her another spot at another shelter in case she reappeared. It isn't until the 30th of July that the great aunt calls CFS again. This time, she states that one of her grandchildren found nude photos of Tina online, once again expressing concern for Tina's well-being. Nothing is done by CFS. And on the 31st, the Winnipeg Police Service filed a missing persons report for Tina. No public announcement or calling to look for Tina was done at this time. After Tina was found dead, her aunt Lana stated that Tina had stayed with her from August 1st through the 3rd. And on the 5th of August, apparently Tina called CFS and was picked up by them. This entire time, it seems that police were not actively searching for Tina, although considering her missing. It wasn't until August 7th when the police finally began to actively search, seven days after she was first considered missing. The next day, Tina showed up to a youth shelter with an unidentified female friend at the early hour of 2 a.m. Tina used the name Tessa Gumond and stated that she was living with her mother, Robin. At this time, workers noted that Tina had a swollen lower lip and several scratches on her knee, but nothing more was visible. At some point when Tina was separated from her friend, the friend told a worker the truth, 
She told them Tina's real name and stated that Tina had been smoking weed laced with cocaine. Still, both females were let go quickly after. By 5.15 that morning, Tina was in a car with an unidentified male. The car was stopped by police, and it was found that the driver had a suspended license. Even though Tina was considered a missing person, she was still let go after police checked her record and found nothing. Yet again, hours later, she was found once again. This time, she was found unconscious in an alleyway that was notorious for sexual exploitation. This alleyway was near the University of Winnipeg. She was transported to the hospital and checked over. Eventually, she was cleared for discharge and was brought to a hotel, once again by CFS. She told them she had been hanging out with a meth user who was 62 and had the name of Raymond Cormier. Then she asked the CFS worker if she could go see friends, and they advised against it. However, promising that she would be back by 11 p.m. apparently swayed them because they let her leave. When she left that hotel, though, she never made it back. The last time she was seen alive was on August 9th in downtown Winnipeg with an unidentified male. It took three whole days after this for CFS to contact Tina's family to try and locate where she could be at at this time. They learned that Tina's mother had not seen her for the past two weeks, despite Tina being there to visit her and presumably staying with her. This just seemed crazy to me because her mother was obviously not worried about her, not worried about seeing her for two weeks, and police obviously were not worried about her being missing, and CFS was not worried despite Tina being injured and her great-aunt expressing grave concern for her well-being. The day after they tried to locate Tina, they finally announced to the public that she was missing and asked for those in the area to look for her. Around the time of the announcement, the police received an anonymous call that Tina was involved in sex work, but nothing ever came of that lead, and it is believed to be a lie because of what we know now. On August 17th, Tina's body was found. It was wrapped in a plastic bag and a duvet cover while being weighed down by multiple rocks. Her body was found in the Red River near the Alexander Docks in Winnipeg, Canada. Her autopsy was unable to find a cause or manner of death, and to this day, it is still unknown. However, homicide is assumed due to how and where her body was found. It was stated that she did not have any physical trauma on her body, but there was moderate decomposition, so she had been dead for a few days at that time. She was also found to be 5'3", and only 72.7 pounds. I am five foot three and over 30 pounds more than that, and I am still considered underweight, so I can only imagine how malnourished she was at this time. After the discovery of her body, police were able to locate Raymond Cormier, who turned out to be only 53, not 62. It was kind of unclear to me if this was a typo in a few of the articles, or if Tina indeed say he was 62 when he was really 53, and if that's the case, like, why was he lying about his age, and what was going on there? 
Anyways, he was charged with second-degree murder, but there was no evidence. The water and decomposition had gotten rid of all forensic evidence, and he was acquitted of the charges. For me, this is a case of serious CFS neglect through multiple generations. CFS failed Duck, and because of that, she became pregnant when she should have been in middle school. She was set up to fail from the start. Then because of that, Tina did not have a constant home life, the stability she needed or the help she needed with mental health. If CFS would have done what they were supposed to, then I firmly believe this never would have happened. Child Protective Services is not only messed up in the United States, but also in Canada, and something really needs to change. Well, thank you for continuing to listen to me rant about unjust consent laws, police neglect, and CFS neglect. This was the tragic case of Tina Fontaine, and it really should not be forgotten. But remember to follow us on Great Unsolved on Twitter and on Instagram at Great Unsolved Podcast, because I often rant about the same things on there. The links to all of our social media and Patreon is in the description box below. Remember to join me on Get Vocal every Thursday at 8pm CST. Stay safe and have a great day. The Great Unsolved is a partner of the Oracle Network. Growing a business brings pressure. It's not easy to maintain momentum and still keep employees engaged. Fortunately, there's Insperity. Their scalable HR solutions help me with hiring, training, HR administration, and compliance while giving my employees competitive benefit options. When my people are able to thrive, my business can adapt and prosper. With Insperity, nothing seems impossible. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. Welcome to Vast National Bank. How can I help you? Hey, I'm here to talk to someone about a loan. Oh, I'll grab you the L97B. <laughs> we call it the just talking form. What about actually applying for a loan? Oh my. Let me pop in a new toner cartridge. Hey, Bill. I want to pass me the big stapler. Yeah, I'm going to try a community bank. Skip the mega bank. When you need a loan, find a community bank at banklocally.org.